11 FS, this is FinTech Insider News. Today, Griffin applies for a UK banking license. Digital debt collection agency Indebted looks to shake up the UK market. And Goldman Sachs offers senior staff unlimited holiday. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Welcome to episode 630 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra and I'm joined on this week's Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research. Hi, Benjamin. We're doing this in person. We are, which is a real treat. <laughs> nice to have you like physically near me uh, rather than just like a little face on the screen. Well, you were the small one. Oh, yeah, that's true. I was remote for a very long time. Uh, but I live in London now, so yay. Uh, Welcome back. <laughs> thank you. Um, and we're always joined by some amazing special guests. So first up, making a very welcome return to Fintech Insider, we've got David Jarvis, CEO of Griffin. Welcome back to the show, David. Uh, we're going to get into some really exciting news from you guys later. Uh, but can you give the audience a brief introduction to yourself and Griffin, please? Um, yeah. Hi, I'm... Uh founder and CEO of uh, Griffin. We're a banking as a service company that uh, is, as, <laughs> as noted, in the process of, of becoming a bank uh, and pursuing a sort of full stack strategy. So um, looking not only to provide the technology platform and to own the regulated entity, um, but also to basically be a one-stop shop for everything that you need in order to launch a financial services product from core banking system, integrated card rails, integrated compliance rails, um, the goal being to really allow our uh, customers to sort of self-serve through that journey and get to market really quickly. And we've got a FinTech Insider debut from Meta Agarwal, partner at Redpoint Ventures. Hi, Meta. Welcome to the show. Uh, can you give the listeners a little introduction to Redpoint Ventures, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. So um, Redpoint, we're a, a generalist multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley. Um, we have two funds uh, investing across early and growth stages. We've had the pleasure of backing and working with companies like Stripe, Twilio, Zendesk, Looker, Wealthsimple, Nubank, Ramp, and many more. And I, I primarily focus on fintech at the early stages, so seed and Series A. And certainly last but not least, uh, we've got a debut from Lachlan Hoisler, uh, the Chief Strategy Officer at Indebted. Welcome again, Lachlan. We are very grateful that you are up at this odd hour in Australia. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, we've got some news coming up for you as well. But can you give us a bit of a headline as to who, who's Indebted and what, what do you guys do? Yeah, sure. And, and again, thank you very much for having me on, on the podcast. 
Uh, we're indebted. We're a digital debt collection agency. So what does that mean? It means that we're trying to uh, reinvent the world of consumer debt recovery for good. And we use digital contact strategies to contact consumers um, to recover outstanding accounts on behalf of our clients, uh, which means that rather than you know, typically being harassed by a debt collector who's calling you from an unknown number multiple times over a phone, uh, we uh, use sophisticated machine learning models to send uh, emails and text messages to you that are contextualized and, and land in your, uh, your inbox um, or on your phone when it suits you with a message that uh, is empathetic and understanding and uh, helping you and encouraging you to repay your outstanding accounts. Thank you. And with that, let's get into the news. Uh, so first story came from the Retail Banker International. UK-based Bass Fintech Griffin applies for a banking license. So the UK Fintech Griffin has submitted a banking license application to the Prudential Regulation Authority, the PRA, and the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA in the UK. So Griffin is a banking-as-a-service provider catering to fintech players of all sizes. Through Griffin, fintechs can gain access to services such as UK payment rails, bank accounts, debit cards, and in an integrated ledger and customer onboarding automation. Griffin first revealed this intention to become a bank in November 2020. The fintech aims to bring an API-first approach to the UK financial services market, along with a state-of-the-art software, competitive pricing, and transparency. So, David, it is a no-brainer that we're going to come to you first. Um, can you lay, you actually use a term in your introduction that I really liked um, about Griffin going after a full-stack strategy. Can you lay out a little bit about what, what, what you mean by that and, and what would be possible with a banking license that isn't possible for Griffin right now? Yeah, I guess uh, there, there's sort of two pieces of context here. So uh, one is that my background is working at a uh, banking as a service company that was operating more in the sort of middleware layer, which is, I think, the traditional model in the U.S. So partnering with uh, sort of local banks and just looking to provide a technology platform. And so from that lens, um, there are a bunch of issues that you run into around uh, pricing, divergent risk tolerance, divergent uh, product roadmaps between the technology player and the bank um, that can only be resolved by having them be a single entity. And then the other part of this is the sort of various infrastructure components that you need to bring a financial services products to market that all share a data model, but historically have sort of been purchased uh, or sort of people have gone through a buy or build decision a la carte. And so I kind of alluded to some of this earlier, but stuff like you know, onboarding infrastructure, transaction monitoring infrastructure, card issuing, your sort of core banking or whatever you want to call your sort of core ledger, financial record keeping infrastructure, as well as the sort of underlying account and payment infrastructure. Um, and the challenge with that is that while that stuff is uh, sort of owned and operated in silos, you get a lot of overhead involved in keeping it in sync and a lot of weird and nasty race conditions. And so the sort of fundamental thesis for Griffin is uh, it makes a lot of sense for this to be vertically integrated because it all shares a data model. And if the sort of provider of the technology platform also owns the regulatory infrastructure, then you get a lot more clarity and speed on decisions around risk as well as sort of product velocity. Um, ultimately, though, like the major place where this uh, starts to matter vis-a-vis -vis the bank license is around uh, what that means for business model and sort of customer value. So on the business model side, the main thing, obviously, is that the deposits that you hold, you can lend out. And so there's a sort of significant driver, um, a sort of credit driver of the underlying unit economics, which are much more favorable than just eating a cost and passing it on. Um, but related to that is the ability to sort of 
take some of that and use it to provide value to the customer, both A, through the obvious thing of providing credit to your customers, um, but also providing interest, which historically has not really mattered because over the last 15 years, we've been in a zero interest rate environment. As we move into an inflationary environment in which bank rate is no longer you know, sub 1%, the fact that we as a future bank, fingers crossed, are able to actually pay interest to the companies that build and, and store their customers' funds with us is going to become a major differentiator. That's crazy. That I mean, that's the, I, I. It's such like giga brain thinking. I think, um, and and in terms of what I mean by that is that like, no one, you know, the rules have been set out. You know, like banks are banks, like fintechs are fintechs. But we're seeing this like growing trend of fintechs seeking out banking licenses. So, for example, um, Colum in the states uh, bought a community bank this year. Last year, Challenger Bank, GBB, um, and fintech startup Crew secured banking licenses from the SEA and the PRA. Um, what kind of ecosystem impact do you want to make, like in terms of like end user impact uh, with with this move? Um, I, th- I mean, I, I think the main thing is you, you've had a bunch of different players that have tried to. Um, it's, it's taking a step back, right? Like there is still a fundamental divide between um, the special powers that are afforded to banks uh, and everyone else, right? And so the special powers that are afforded to banks uh, are things like um, historically like access to uh, central bank reserve infrastructure, clearing and payments infrastructure um, in the EU and, and UK, you know, uh, safeguarding accounts need to be held at a commercial bank um, within the US. Obviously you like, you can't, you, you, you like you're either a bank or you're basically nothing. Um, so like you you can't just make ACH payments. You can't connect to the Fed without um, some sort of uh, intermediary there. Um, and so that really, and, and, and so people have been aware of this for a while. And, and like there have been various attempts, I think, to create a bank that bridges that more. Um, but it's still been very like traditional. And so what I mean by that is you get these kind of like things that basically look like um, almost like the, the, the trading arms of uh, like capital markets uh, type entities like Goldman Sachs, where you get, you know, really sort of payments focused uh, operations. And no one is looking to provide like the holistic like software infrastructure, which is just as tough of a problem. And you like on the other hand, you have people at the middleware layer who are trying to do the software really well, but who are not necessarily, who are still like a, a degree removed from the regulatory infrastructure. Um and the challenge there is that you end up with this awkward thing around unit economics where people will build on a middleware player for a while and then say, you know what, actually, A, this is really expensive. And B, like there are some weird edge cases that keep arising here that are making us really uncomfortable. We want to go directly to the bank. So our, our hope is um, that like uh, what William's doing with, with Column, by really combining a like product first approach and the regulatory infrastructure, that we're able to solve like a, a bunch of kind of concurrent problems and give people what they need uh, in a way that will actually both serve them in the short term and in the long term. David, I have a question for you. Um, to the extent you're able to share, I'm really curious how you thought about um, the decision to move forward to apply for a banking license. Obviously, it's a really big one um, and it's a heavy lift. And how did you think about the trade-offs? And do what are the trade-offs, I guess, for for the for the audience, and how did you think about those relative to the benefits? So there are near-term trade-offs and there are long-term trade-offs. The near-term trade-offs are um, you don't get to make any revenue because uh, you, you're, you're stuck for probably several years, as has been the case for us, uh, going through this process in which you don't have the regulatory permission to do what you want to do, 
we've started to figure out the way around that, which is to take some of the kind of modular components that are not regulated, like um, the sort of compliance tooling and, and to start to offer that commercially. Um, but it is really challenging. And, you know, we have, um, I don't know, peer firms in the space who have chosen a much lighter approach of partnering for now and, and going on the sort of product-led um, layer. And, um, you know, they're able to demonstrate traction really early. Uh, and in the European financing environment, that means they're able to raise a lot more money much earlier. I think that the the catch there is that the moat on that business is very, very low. Um, like anyone can sort of enter uh, at pretty much any time. Um, and I don't really see there being much by way of kind of like long-term value there, unless like each of those players needs to kind of move further down the stack. And one of the issues that you start to run into is that you can move a certain degree down um, with, with friction, but it's doable. You can go from being unregulated to having a payments license or, or sort of partnering, having a payments license or having a payments license to an EMI. Going from an EMI to becoming a bank or a payments institution to a bank is a very, very different thing. It goes out of like what is purely regulatory and um, sort of compliance focused and into the realm of the political. And if you don't have the ability to play that game, which most people don't, you just kind of hit a wall. Uh, and so the sort of very, very active choice for us up front was like, we're going to do a super, super hard and nasty thing. And it's hard and nasty because of all the heavy lifting you have to do, but it's also hard and nasty because you have to know how to angle the knife so that it goes in. Um, and if you don't, like, it's just going to get stuck. Uh, and part of that is hiring the right people. Part of it is knowing what language to speak and like learning what language to speak. There's definitely like a code you have to learn. Um, and the downside is we took a lot more dilution. Fundraising was much harder. Um, it's taken us a really, really long time even to get to where we are today, and we're still not, you know, authorized. Um, but we think that if we want to build a, you know, hundred billion dollar business, like this is the way to do it. Yeah, and I'm I'm super interested by this because, um, as you said, there's there's not that many banks in Europe that are really pushing hard at banking as a service. Obviously, there's a, you know, there's a lot more activity in the United States. Um, is it fair to compare you with Solaris Bank, you know, once you once you get a license? Um, I'm thinking of someone like ClearBank, but that's not quite the same. Is it, their ambitions are not quite the same. There's not many licensed banks in Europe in general that have taken this path. So that's a pretty good opportunity for you once you get there, right? Yeah, Solaris is definitely up there on the list of um banks that we think are really close to our strategy. And the sort of major differentiator between us and Solaris is that they've generally taken a much more uh, like enterprise go-to-market approach, whereas what we've been looking to do has been to enable companies of all sizes. Um, so, you know, really, really early companies that have just done their first round of funding or maybe are looking at doing their first round of funding to start going through the process with us and to, and to like get a product into market really quickly. We really see that being a huge differentiator because like the normal experience of getting set up with a banking partner in Europe is a six to eight month process. And if you are a startup, that's like just intolerable and there's no reason for it. I mean, like, sorry, there's a reason for it, but like it doesn't need to be that way. It, it is in fact possible for it to not be that way. I'd be interested, uh, Lachlan, in your, in your perspective on Australia, because to me, some of this comes down to how easy it is to get a banking license. And obviously, it's not easy anywhere. Is it as hard in Australia as it appears to be in the United States? Um, how long is the process in Australia to get a banking license, do you know? 
Yeah, it's a good question. They, they've, they, the prudential regulator down here has actually amended the licensing regime over the last few years um, such that you can apply for what's known as a restricted uh, license. And, and it's basically they sort of they gatekeep you through certain stages because, you know, obviously the hardest part of getting a banking license, I think, anywhere in the world is often associated with the capital adequacy that's required in order to obtain that license. So if you can reduce the amount of capital that's required to obtain your license early on and, and you can jump through the hoops that are required in order to get the regulator comfortable that you are able to do what you are say that you are going to do, I think it makes it much easier. And and certainly from a competition point of view in many of the markets around the world, and Australia is a, is a prime example here, uh, you know, we are typically we have a banking industry that's dominated by four very large trading banks that have been around for a long period of time and you haven't had a lot of competition into that market. So having sort of restricted licenses that allow you to fulfill regulatory obligations as you are getting that license um, has facilitated the entry of some some neobanks into the market down here in Australia. Some have been successful, some haven't been, but I think ultimately the goal, you know, if we want to deliver a fantastic financial services and banking products in any market around the world is to have a licensing regime that allows competition to enter that market um, and and licenses uh, or, or application processes that make that easier is certainly something that, that financial regulators need to embrace around the world. Really, really interesting. Moving on. All right, next story. This comes from Altfi. So digital debt collection agency Indebted arrives in the UK aiming to improve the sector's image. So digital debt collection agency Indebted has launched in the UK as consumers face growing financial pressures due to the cost of living crisis. So Indebted's UK launch follows a successful period operating in beta after being granted FCA authorization back in August 2021. The Australian company uses digital channels such as SMS and email to connect with consumers, offering a number of options for managing debt through a self-service portal. They also boast a global 24-7 support team available to assist customers across all channels. The launch comes amid a spiraling cost-of-living crisis in the UK, with energy spikes and rising food prices forcing more people into debt. Lachlan, coming to you naturally for this, um, really, really great to have you here to discuss this. Can you explain, um, you know, we've talked about the crisis and all that, but can you explain a little bit more as to why this is the right time to expand into the UK? Yeah, th- again, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, you know, we, we've chosen this market to this this point in time to launch into the UK because we, we feel the time is right. I mean, essentially indebted is out there to change what is in all essences a broken industry. Um, debt collection and certainly the practices of debt collection haven't changed in the last 30 years. So, you know, when you think of a debt collection business, typically they're very large call centres where people are hooked up to what's known as auto dialers and they uh, these machines dial out to, to cell phones or mobile phones or, or landlines of people with the anticipation that someone A will answer the phone and B will be able to give three points of ID verification to someone they've never met calling from an unknown or, or a, a, a blocked number uh, and then make a payment then and there on the spot, which we just think is completely broken as a process. Um, and, and if you think about how companies interact with their consumers these days, um, you know, pretty much 100% of people are originated online and they, they have a digital process and there's a digital servicing process and if they were then to be those consumers that unfortunately fall behind on their accounts are then met with an analog collections process, it makes no sense. So, uh, and, and, you know, we, we operate in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US, and, and now launching in the UK. 
And uh, when we, you know, when we entered the market um, in, in August last year, when we received our authorization from the FCA, we were just very surprised that the collections industry in the UK is still very backward and focus on, you know, uh, outbound calls from block numbers um, in call centres and sending legal threatening letters in the mail. Um, whereas we think that, you know, our model, which is to send, um, you know, emails and text messages to people that, that, that are empathetic and understanding uh, and allowing them to self-serve uh, on their accounts online when it suits them um, is the model that, that the, the market should embrace. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm amused, Lachlan, that I think you're demonstrating your 24 by 7 contact centre by getting up in the middle of the night in Australia to join <laughs> us. But leaving that aside, um, what I think is really interesting in what you're saying is that your point about taking an empathetic strategy, because my thinking is that a lot of what's broken is a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how and why people get into debt, right? Very few people set out to get into debt. Yes, obviously, there's a small proportion of criminals who deliberately borrow money, never intending to pay it back. But the vast majority of people who get into um, debt are people who either didn't understand what they were doing in the first place, didn't understand the borrowing they were doing in the first place, or more often have have had bad things happen in their life. You know, a family member's got ill, uh, they've had mental health challenges, maybe they've lost a job. Suddenly, you know, costs have shot up, energy costs, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, um, causes ripple effects all around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm completely on board with this idea that, you know, ringing customers out of the blue um, on a strange number is totally ineffective. But also, so is this sort of aggressive strategy that some debt collectors have taken of kind of assuming that the person who's borrowed the money is at fault and is in some way, maybe criminal is too strong a word, but, you know, had a bad intent. Mm -hmm. Because my understanding is actually that most people are in debt never intended to get into debt because it's not a situation you want to be in. It happened because bad things happened. Uh, you know, obviously there's gambling and you know, other things that cause people to get into debt, but often it's bad things happen to a good person. It, it's, a, it's a very interesting point, and, and it was actually one of the fundamental tenets of, of our organisation when we established it, is that we, we literally took the view that we think people want to pay back these outstanding accounts. And, and you know, those people that you mentioned that, that have intentionally taken out, you know, loans or borrowed money or, you know, facilitated a credit product with, that, with the intention of never paying it back is actually a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of people that we interact with. Most people that, that we interact with, I mean, a very, very large percentage have just forgotten for whatever reason to, to pay these accounts and and you know in in today's day and age when everyone's super busy and and typically as credit products are also changing um, such that rather than having a large outstanding revolving balance on something like a credit card you have multiple you know smaller point of sale finance loans um, in installments that, that you have outstanding and and people simply forget to pay their credit card details or, or debit card details change and you know we we hope to offer a solution whereby um, you know, those people can easily facilitate the pay, uh, repayment of that outstanding account. And as you said, you know, oftentimes there's a life circumstance change. Um, someone might have lost a job. Uh, they might have had a medical incident that, that has taken them a bit of time out of, out of the workforce and, and such that, you know, we want to offer and lead with communications to these people that explain to them that we're actually here to help them. And we understand that being behind on their accounts, you know, can be incredibly stressful for them. And so, you know, rather than offering up a, you know, threatening legal uh, mannerism to the communications and, and, again, doing that via analog channels that people don't usually interact with anymore, um, but rather saying, hey, like, you know, we're here to help you. 
um, you know, we're offering a, a, you know, an easy solution. It's a flexible uh, solution. We can set up a payment plan, you know, for you that, that suits your financial uh, situation at this point in time. And and what we found is that that thesis is true: is that you know we're able to to reach a reach more people, b recover uh, more amounts from these people, and c do so with a better customer experience. And and you know that that's uh, shown by the fact that we've got almost two thousand. Uh, reviews on Google from people that have gone through a debt collection process with us and left us a five-star Google review. So uh, the the sort of the anecdote that we like to make with that is is you know do you go to the dentist and get a root canal and and go wow I'm really looking forward to getting that root canal and it was an amazing experience and <laughs> I'm going to leave a, an awesome review. Um, typically with debt collection, it's not something you associated with a positive customer experience, and and in debt, it is definitely out there trying to change that um, viewpoint from from the standing of of being a debt collection company. Yeah, I'm, I'm super interested uh, in in like your story um, because like you know uh, I think fintech infrastructure generally does not appeal to most people other than the sort of you know potential sort of financial side. And I know how I came to like my thing. When I think about like debt collection, like it, it is very hard for me to imagine a less romantic business. <laughs> um, so, like, what made you want? Like, how did you get into this? What made you want to do this? It's a great question. It, it's something. Whenever I'm I'm interviewing a candidate to join our company, uh, one of the leading, well, the first question is, why do you want to join a debt collector? It's not the first thing you think of uh, from a career point of view that you want to join a debt collection business, but. Um, I mean, my story to come across indebted, I, w- I was running a lending business uh, down here in Australia and New Zealand. I had some exposure to collections and um, I knew what a terrible process it was, not only from a customer experience point of view, but but uh, from a, from as a client and, and trying to understand like how these businesses work. And I got introduced to a mutual, mutual acquaintance, um, uh, through a mutual acquaintance to Josh Foreman, who's the founder and CEO of Indebted. He came and pitched me. He was a 27-year-old kid and, and um, pitched me this idea that he had and, and a light bulb just went off in my head and I was just like, this is the best idea I've heard in such a long time. And and I joined forces I, 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 with Josh at that point uh, on and, and um, you know, helping him grow the business. So it was a, it was a practical experience um, that I had been through the collections industry, experienced it firsthand as, as someone looking to recover money. And decided that um, this industry was right for disruption and, and needed to go out and attack it myself. I'm going to come to Mita uh, with this question. So uh, you are obviously uh, in the investment space in the VC world, um, and coming across countless—I can't imagine how many companies you, you look at every day. Um, but I can imagine that a lot of them, a lot of fintechs that cross your desk, would likely be lending firms, right, or at least have some kind of. Lending component is that correct? I mean, I'm, I'm, that's an assumption. No, it, it's uh, particularly over the last twelve to twenty-four months. It's become, a, especially with interest rates low, it's become a popular category or wedge, for sure. And and when you do your due diligence and, and, and they're speaking to these folks, when they what's their approach to collections? I mean, obviously every fintech has or startup has this you know very utopic idea of what they're going to do, how they're going to serve customers. But the ugly truth is that, like, if you're offering lending, if you're offering sexy buy now, pay later, whatever, you have to kind of consider uh, collections. When you speak to these founders, what is what's their thinking around? Um, you know, do they know about people like indebted? Do they like what's their approach? Is it are they thinking realistically about this? Yeah, I. It's a great question. Um, I think a, a lot of things in fintech broadly, and particularly in fintech infrastructure, 
are harder than they seem on the surface. <laughs> um, I would say that's a, that's a general um, theme. And so, um, I, you know, I, I can't speak for what each of the founders are thinking or where that they, where they're at. But but I think there's this vision of I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything end to end. And like the conversation that David that we just had with David earlier you kind of pull back some of the layers and it's really hard. And so I think um, there's a, there's a few cup early stage companies similar to indebted. I, I think they're slightly different in how they approach the problem in the U S but that are trying to provide um, loan servicing as a service to, to, to reduce the load for you know, FinTech companies that have a lending component. And then there's some folks that try and do it in house. They hire a bunch of people or they outsource it to kind of more of a traditional agency, which is the, the, you know, kind of dialing for dollars kind of organizations that Lachlan mentioned earlier um, to, to kind of keep it up and keep it going. But it's, it's a heavy lift. It's not easy. I always think any fool can lend money. The hard part is getting it back. So Lachlan, <laughs> I'm you know, super, super yeah. impressed by what you're doing. Yeah, it's 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 an interest it's an interesting point. I mean, because the way that we sort of pitch it is that we spend a hundred and ten percent of our effort just focus on collections, and you know, it sounds easy to send emails and text messages to to get money back, but in reality, it's actually super hard. I mean, the fact you know, at this point in time, given our scale, you know, we're sending millions and millions and millions of emails and text messages a month to to consumers around the world. And so, um, you know, and, and we, we, you know, pick our, our data science team pick from a pool of templates that's now in the thousands. And so it's being able to match the contextual template, not only the look and feel of the template, but the copy that's contained in that template um, to the contextual point in the journey of the person going through the collections process. So typically a, a traditional agency would run what's known as a Dunnings process, which is a strategy that's defined by time. And so, you know, on day one, you do this, on day two, you do this, on day three, you do this. Whereas what we're able to offer is down to the individual account level, a customized collections journey based on what the consumer is actually doing in terms of interacting with our communications. So if we send them an email and they open the email and go to our payment gateway um, and, and try and set up a payment arrangement, but don't make a payment, we can use that information to then send them a personalized message that says, hey, we noticed that you landed on our website and looked to set up a payment arrangement, but didn't do so. Here's one that we think might suit you. Um, click here to, to set up this arrangement. And, and doing also within the confines of the regulatory and compliance frameworks that, that are placed upon collection agencies in every jurisdiction around the world, uh, we just you know, aim to make this super simple and, and to sort of tie a bow on this, it's, you know, we want to build or we want to be the API for unsecured consumer collections for businesses around the world. And so if, if you know, a, a multi-jurisdictional fintech that's offering lending products in multiple markets around the world only has to deal with indebted rather than all of the different local collection agencies that they're interacting with, we think that's a good thing. And it certainly saves them, them time and they can leverage, you know, the expertise that we have um, in multiple markets around the world. And that's the goal for our business at this point in time. Yeah. Sorry. A quick thought on that. I, I love that. And I think that one of the ideas about this wave of, of kind of um, technology innovation, and financial services or fintech that's um, so inspiring and exciting for me and why I'm spending so much time here is this idea of um, creating more personalized products and services for individuals that maybe don't otherwise have access or not treated fairly. 
right? It's not kind of to what Lachlan just said. Uh, it's not one size fits all. Like on the servicing side, we've heard this many times, not everyone gets paid on the first and the 15th of every month. And so, you know, trying to collect from them on the, on the first or the second, it doesn't work. And maybe they want to pay, but that's not when they, they had money put into their bank account or when they got their, when they got their um, check from their employer. And so I, I love that idea and that concept of personalizing it for, for the individual. That's great. On that note, so I, I just want to recap, like, I think, Lachlan, you guys have gone, you know, there's there's the difference between data-driven and data-informed, and, like, you guys are hella data-informed, it seems, like, actually with a thoughtful approach to, to, to debt collection. Never thought I would be out here nerding out about debt collection. Thank you, Lachlan, for changing my <laughs> life. All right, let's just take a quick pause. Uh, uh, while you hear from our sponsors, we'll be back shortly. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. Welcome back and let's get into our next story. So for the first time, Japan's SoftBank could spend more on share buybacks than new investments. So this is from the CNBC. Japanese conglomerate SoftBank may for the first time ever spend more money uh, on share buybacks than investments through its landmark vision fund, according to the CLSA's Oliver Matthew. SoftBank's recently posted a record $27 billion loss in its vision fund as tech stocks have plummeted in recent months. During an earnings call, uh, SoftBank's founder, Masayoshi Son, said the company will go into defense mode as a result of headwinds that have rocked the global markets. From inflation fears in the U.S., Federal Reserve to to the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. The firm's vision fund invests in high-growth startups and has made sizable bets in firms ranging from Chinese tech giants like Alibaba and Didi to South Korean e-commerce like Kupang. These guys are like, like SoftBank is like, there was a time I remember when like every single raise we saw in the news in TechCrunch, SoftBank was in the article somewhere. My God, they were like, what Tiger is now, I guess, but like still probably the same size. Anyway, Mita, we're going to come to you as someone in the VC space. It makes sense to come to you, obviously, on this. Um, Are we seeing a significant shift in strategy when it comes to venture capital? Is everyone on the back foot right now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think, um, venture capital or, or private technology investing, I would say more broadly, it, uh, it it's it's a very diverse industry. I think if you think of everything from pre-seed or seed giving one or a couple founders with an idea capital to go explore an idea, find founder market fit to the pre-IPO round right before a company is going to um, IPO and go public and everything in between, there, there's a lot in there in the life cycle of a company. I think um, what we've seen is it is a significant correction in the public markets. The you know some data that we that that we've seen is if you just look at SaaS as an example in uh, kind of technology, the peak NTM revenue multiple. So for the uh, next twelve months, it, the revenue multiple uh, for the valuation was. Um, 
50.8x. And, and today that's dropped almost 80% to, to below 9x, so to 8.8x. That's, a, that's just a, a um, you know, historic, unprecedented decline. And as a result, it, what you see is that private investors were looking at public comps as what these companies could be worth when they go public. And they were making investment and valuation decisions based on valuations that uh, are not realistic at this point in time. And so uh, if you see if you see kind of the mindset shifting, I think it, it starts closest to the public markets where the change started. And so those pre-IPO rounds, those very late stage companies that are pretty mature, contemplating going public, that's where you've see, started to see um, a massive shift in their thinking. And over time, you know, it, it, it's like dominoes. You'll start seeing uh, and we started to see shifts in thinking um earlier and earlier in the life cycle of a company and in the fundraising life cycle. And you you participated in the, in the pre-seed seed stage. Is this also affecting that that stage, like, like further away from, I guess, IPO? What kinds of decisions and, and conversations are you having with early stage founders in light of this, I'm going to call it a crash? <laughs> yeah. So what the companies that I'm investing in day to day at the seed or series A, they are not going public. What I tell them is, you know, they're not going in public in the next 12 months or the next 24 months. And so what's happening in the public markets doesn't have a direct impact in what I'm doing um, day to day or how I think about the, the value of a company. I think what founders need to think about and, and what's changing in the way we're thinking about things is the funding landscape, right? So what are the milestones that this company needs to achieve and the progress it needs to make to raise its next round of funding, um, and how do we set the company up and how do they plan forward to be able to do that? So, so um, I think there's, and I think the change that's happening is as you, you tr see it trickling down for, for the next series A, series B, series C, um, there's more focus on metrics and kind of building unit economics, more sustainable standalone businesses versus, um, you know, for the last 12 to 24 months, high growth, perhaps even at all costs, was what was being uh, re rewarded above all else. I always joke that uh, the last few years we've seen founders raise on uh, a deck and vibes, like no customers, no traction, um, just a deck and vibes, and like <laughs> they're able to raise millions of dollars. Uh, but, you know, not every, fin not every tech is, is like that. I understand that. But um, Dan and Lachlan, like you guys are both, both, both um, you know, in, 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 at fast-growing companies, like, what kinds of conversations are you having with investors right now? Are you having conversations with investors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, certainly, like, we're very lucky in the sense that we've been supported by a great set of investors in our company. But, you know, the funding market has definitely changed. And so, you know, whereas previously, um, you know, you may have been focused so much on growth that, it, you know, you forgot about the bottom line. It's now that the conversations are, you know, what is your gross margin profile? How is that improving over time? What are your unique economics? What is your pathway to, to profitability if you're not already cash flow break even? And it, it is, it's just changed the conversations that, that, you know, fintech companies in particular are having with investors. And, and um, you know, we're all here to, to ultimately grow sustainable and, and everlasting businesses. And the best way to do that is to generate your own organic capital. And, and to do that, you have to be profitable. So I think there's definitely been a switch in the market and, and it's 
um, you know, when we do speak to investors, you know, that, that those are the types of conversations that we're having now is, you know, what is your profitability profile, um, you know, and, and what does your business look like at scale in, in terms of gross margins and, and, you know, therefore profitability over time? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, I think we... For us, on the one hand, like not that much has changed insofar as there is no option for us to turn on the tap. You know, like the thing that we're building looks like a biotech company, right? It's like super, super capital intensive upfront, takes a long time to get there. And then once you have the thing, assuming your, you know, your, your whatever, you know, regulatory risk that has paid off or has been removed, um, you know, at, at that point, you can start to generate ideally like sort of material cash flow and there's a reason that there are well uh b- banks being regulated makes them an oligopoly so you get some sort of superior commercials that, that come along with that um i think uh we are uh <laughs> we're we're fortunate to have um snuck something in before everything else went crazy i guess uh which we haven't announced yet but you can you'll see something in like a couple weeks um uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, as we think about the fact that we're going to need to raise, uh, like activation capital towards the end of the year to actually, you know, to take the regulatory decision and, um, make sure that we've covered our regulatory capital requirements. Like, uh, we are, I think just evaluating what the appetite is. And it seems like for our business, like there is still appetite, certainly, um, it doesn't hurt that uh, like modular and unit both just announced ridiculous hundred million, you know, raises that, that clearly demonstrate that investors have a lot of appetite for this type of business model. Um, but I am, I don't know. I like, I'm, I'm, I have two minds about it. On the one hand, I'm like, okay, like flight to quality, like our thing prints money. We're not like a retail bank that has a loss leading current account and needs like millions of customers to make money. Like every customer, every direct customer we have is a minimum six figure contract. And usually that rolls up to seven figures pretty quickly. Um, on the other hand, like uh, it is a lot of capital up front. So you got to have the appetite to, to do that um, and the firepower to do it. It'll be interesting. I don't know. Very, very interesting. M- my sense is that evaluation is returning to more realistic levels is actually incredibly healthy for the market. I mean, although it's obviously painful for investors who've lost out on some of those bets, you know, 50 times earnings, you know, evaluations of 50 times earnings is assuming a heck of a lot of growth. You know, and sometimes when you look at certain some of those companies, the amount of growth expected worldwide to achieve, you know, those valuations was was unrealistic. And presumably what that ends up meaning is that some weaker startups with really not much of a track record, not much prospect and not getting the funding that they might have got 12 or 18 or 24 months ago. So you're not getting the creation of some of these kind of weaker companies that are just going to blow a lot of capital, um, you know, create a lot of noise, but not actually create any enduring value. So although it's painful, I think correction is, is overdue. Yeah, I, I, as an early stage investor, I, I, I think my comment would be a little bit different on the growth stage. But on the early stage side, I'm I'm actually excited. I hope that this is an opportunity for um, really high potential founders to take the leap. Just like in the beginning of COVID, it was a great opportunity for people. They they were at home. They'd kind of been um, pulled out of their routines and had the chance to evaluate, do I want to start a company? And a lot of people did. I hope that this is an opportunity for a lot of people who maybe felt like they had gold in handcuffs 
um, as they were vesting to, to, to realize, Hey, you know, maybe actually it's a great time. And on the other side to what you just said about, um, some of the, uh, some, some stuff being flushed out of the system, uh, there are there are a lot of competitors in a, in every category today because a lot of companies were being funded and started and the the mortality rate you know traditionally at seed you kind of maybe saw thirty percent graduate to Series A over the last couple of years it was closer to ninety um, in certain classes and so what you see as a result is that you you see a lot of early stage companies splitting the market. And that's not great for anyone because it means customer acquisition is harder. You maybe have to discount more to acquire a user, and and so and the, and the pie might not even be big enough um, to, for for there to be multiple players. So, I, you know, I think it's going to be painful in many diff- in many ways, but I'm also excited about the potential of what can happen. I think the the one thing I feel like super grateful about is like you know going into twenty 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 one you know, like our, our board, like I'm sure many boards were like, Oh my God, there's money like falling from heaven. Like we got to like get out there and like take advantage of that. And, um, you know, if, if we had, we would be looking at a down round now. And so like the, the thing I'm sort of, you know, grateful for is that we didn't get too caught up in the frenzy. Um, and, uh, we've, we, we are, we are priced like reasonably. Like I, I feel good about our ability to do it, like to not have to do a flat round, to not have to do a down round. But I think about like the math behind some of the rounds that my like peers have, have done over the last year. And I'm like, there's no way, there's no way that you can sustain that. Yeah. I'm in the middle of watching, uh, we, we crashed and I, I totally, um, I'm, it's fresh for me. Uh, Mita, I'm going to, I'm going to move on to the next story. Uh, we've got a little, little bit of time. Uh, so we'll breeze through this story. Um, <clears throat> Revolut continues the trend of older users adopting fintech. So British neobank Revolut is the latest fintech to enjoy a rise in the number of so-called silver swipers. I love that. Uh, users between the ages of 55 and 74. The $33 billion challenger bank has noted a quadrupling of UK users in this age bracket since 2020. So Revolut also reported a 260% increase in the number of users in the 65 to 74 bracket that have used the digital lenders' services, the digital uh, bank services abroad. So meanwhile, spending by 54 to 64-year-olds in foreign countries has increased by 500% in, in the last two years. These guys are all going on vacation. That's great. Um, the fintech startup believes more older customers will flock to its services. This is so cool. I like I'm kind of stoked to talk about this because like this so-called silver swipers, I've never heard that word before, but I love it. Um, I think a lot of fintech focuses quite heavily on the sexiness and coolness of millennials and Gen Z. Uh, but Mita, I'm going to come to you like in terms of from from an investment perspective, is this is this is this are these numbers kind of like a surprise to you uh, to see that older older users are adopting fintech and and starting to use it? Um, I, so in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, you know, I think the, the range of someone who's, uh, 55, if you think of the average 55 year old, they would maybe, uh, not feel great about the idea of being thought of as a silver swiper or, uh, um, or, a uh, um, senior, right? Um, I know a ton of 55-year-olds or even 65-year-olds that are um, really fit and active, still working, really um, kind of on Twitter, um, on Instagram, on Facebook. And um, I think that the tech adoption for, for some of these demographics is actually in, in certain pockets pretty high. 
And I think it's also really exciting for fintechs because traditionally um, some of the earlier, the companies that have uh, gotten quite large or gone public have targeted an underserved part of the population because they had lower bank balances or hadn't yet been, um, uh, hadn't adopted financial services because the more, the incumbents were targeting the more profitable customers um, as conventional wisdom would, uh, would tell you. But the, but these folks, they're later in their, in their lives, they're more stable, their, uh, their LTV or the potential revenue and profitability is, is really high. And so to, to hear and see that these, that these segments of the population are adopting fintech is really exciting to me, um, not just demographically, but from a kind of opportunity and profitability LTV perspective for a lot of these companies. I don't think this story is about adoption of fintech at all by, by older customers, although I completely agree with everything that you've just said. Um, and specifically, I think it's about how old you feel, not how old you are. Um, I think this is all about Revolut and travel and the pandemic. People shut down for two years, can't travel, suddenly, boom, you can go abroad. Loads of British people and people all around the world are traveling for the first time in ages. Revolut's unique value proposition compared with all the other digital banks has always been that Revolut offered free um, f- free currency transfers mm-hmm. and free ATM withdrawals in other countries. So this is all about people traveling and people saying to their friends, hey, how do I do travel? Ex- you know, how do I do foreign exchange these days? You know, instead of going to a travel X thing and paying a fortune at the airport, oh, just get the Revolut app. This is just younger people telling their parents, get Revolut, parents getting on board. They mm. probably don't have their main account at Revolut, but they've cottoned on, hey, Revolut, I'm going to Spain, I'm going wherever I'm going. Revolut gives me free currency exchange. That's what this story is all about. Well done, Revolut. Good for them. But I don't think this is a wider trend. No, you don't yeah. think so? Well, whatever it is, I would disagree. I think a lot of fintech, the it's all about finding that right wedge in to build yeah. a relationship yeah. with uh, the yeah. customer, yeah. Uh-huh. right? And um, kudos to Revolut for realizing that free money um, currency exchange was a good wedge to build that relationship. Just like Chime in the U.S. Um, used reducing removing fees as the as the wedge in to acquire customers and then sell them product after product and become their primary bank account. Um, I think it's really smart and it's really exciting. And, it, and if it's allowed a segment of the population that hasn't had the opportunity to experience a, a digitally native. Uh, fintech experience do that and and once they're in the app they can see hey look at all these other products and services that can be offered to me that's amazing and i'm excited for um their continual adoption crypto i will will say like um (laughs) like i i have been getting like a crazy number of revolut ads recently so i'm i would love to like correlate this with like marketing spend is right now just just like in isolation of everything else just love to know what that looks like it feels like uh, stupid, stupid numbers of Revolut ads. They have got to be spending a lot on trying to acquire me as a customer. They're targeting you. It must be something you're saying on WhatsApp or something. You're, you're, you're discussing a holiday with your friends and they're bang. I mean, in, in fairness, <laughs> like, like, I, 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 like I'm, I'm just, I live in like a, a socked cloud of fintech. So like it, it makes sense. I love that imagery. A soft the cloud soft, of fintech. Yeah, the soft maybe, cloud. Of fintech. Maybe that's the title of this Twitter show. Bio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where does he live in a soft cloud of just fintech? Uh, Lachlan, I'm going to come to you. Uh, you're you have you know we are speaking from Europe and, and North American perspectives. In in Australia, um, obviously, I think Australia is also going seeing people age uh, more people age. Uh, um, 
sorry, more aged people spend money and adopt tech. Is this, is this, is this you see more of this trend um, in the wider fintech space uh, and fintechs that are serving the these silver swipers? Yeah, I mean, in Australia and New Zealand, we're very fortunate in the sense that we have a population that's very forward thinking when it comes to the use of technology. And and certainly, if you think about some brands that have been born out of out of the country, you know, like Afterpay and and Zero out of New Zealand, um, you know, they they we have very early adopters. And and certainly in our business, um, you know, we we thought that you know our business would be geared towards you know millennials and gen z's and and certainly like we have a very large percentage of those consumers um that we interact with in our business but uh we also see people in that older demographic uh, that that are engaging with buy now pay laters um not only in australia but in new zealand but all around the world and and you know we often get asked by potential clients well what about you know, your business is suited to the younger demographic. What about the older demographic? And, and we say, well, the data tells us that that we have a large number of older people that utilise our service to, to self-serve themselves and, and cure their accounts online. So um, these silver swipers, I, I think, are definitely interacting with fintech products uh, for sure and, and uh, are taking advantage of, of the, the, the better user experiences um, that the fintech products definitely offer um, to, to use financial services products for sure. All right, we could we could go on about the silver swipers forever. Um, I, I I could at least. Uh, let's let's move on to the next segment, which is stories we didn't have time to cover. So this is the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories uh, from this week that we did not have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. So Benjamin, get us started, please. Okay, our first story is one that David actually mentioned uh, earlier in the show, which is that banking as a service startup unit has closed on a hundred million dollar raise at a one point two billion dollar valuation. This was reported in TechCrunch and various other places. So Unit, which is a banking-as-a-service startup, uh, has raised $100 million Series C round of funding led by Insight Partners. The raise follows a $51 million Series B financing that was announced last June and brings its totally equity raised since inception to nearly $170 million. Um, founders Itai Damti and Doron Somech started Unit, which has dual headquarters in Tel Aviv and New York City, in late 2019. The pair spent the first year stealthily building out the technology with the mission of giving companies a way to embed financial services into their product and accelerating their time to market. The duo previously started and bootstrapped Leverate, a Tel Aviv-based B2B trading tech provider. Um, if you're interested in more on whether embedded finance will make or break the fintech industry, keep an eye out for our upcoming podcast, hosted by our very own Guerra, um, speaking with a number of big names in the space. And I was personally disappointed not to be on that show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is a super interesting story. I mean, it, it's obviously very, very similar uh, to, to, to your story, David, and, and, and your success. Um, this is a very, uh, a very hot part of the market because embedded finance creates this fantastic opportunity to offer finance closer to to the point of customer need, whether that's payments or lending or insurance. Um, I think we think banking as a service is going to have a huge, huge growth. Um, There's not a ton of providers in there. uh, Units built a modern tech stack. Um, I'm not surprised a lot of investors want to get a piece of that action because they're likely to become, be among the successful players. So super interesting. Great. Thank you. Next story, Apple will let your subscription apps charge you more money without even asking. So Apple has updated its App Store rules to make it so that subscriptions can auto-renew without your explicit permission, even if the developer has raised the monthly or annual price. Before the rule change, users will have to manually opt into a subscription renewal if 
it came up if it came with a price bump. Now that won't necessarily be the case, though you'll still be notified about price change before it happens. But Apple says it's making the change to help avoid the situation where users unintentionally lose access to a subscription because they missed on an opt-in message. The price can only be raised once per year without requiring an opt-in, which should help prevent scammy apps from slowly increasing their price every other month. Um, speaking from experience of someone who has a Spotify family account when like five of my friends who live in different countries and my credit card changed <laughs> or like uh, or I forget um, they raised the fee and, and had five people messaging me being like, what happened to Spotify? <laughs> it's definitely like this is I mean, this is, I guess, good for keeping maintaining access. But like, I don't know, like I, it feels kind of gross to me. Like it's more like they're pandering to developers. Um, but this is also happening in, in light of like the contrast is Google Pay recently allowing uh, users to uh, spin up virtual cards, which basically a lot of people, myself included, use for like short-term subscriptions. So yeah, Apple, Google kind of on the other side of um, the coin on this one. Uh, But yeah, Benjamin. So our next story is that Brazil's new bank has beaten revenue estimates on strong customer growth. This was reported by Reuters, among others. So new bank has posted a surge in revenue that beat expectations. The Warren Buffett-backed digital bank benefited from a healthy loan book and strong customer growth, sending its shares surging nearly 8% in extended trading. New bank added 5.7 million new clients this quarter. I'll just repeat that. 5.7 million new clients this quarter, while its monthly average revenue per active client rose to $6.7, up from $3.2 a year earlier. Revenue more than tripled to $877 million from a year earlier, well above analyst estimates of $624 million, according to data from Refinitiv. To hear more about how Newbank is proving to be so effective at onboarding new customers, we spoke to Joe Colchester, product manager at 11FS Pulse, to explain the mechanics behind it. So looking at Newbank's onboarding, while not groundbreaking from a global best-in-class sense, it nails the key points in that it's simple, it's quick, maybe around five, six minutes, which is great even by European standards. And crucially for the LATAM audience, the user can upload their ID and signature virtually. So this totally virtual and branches onboarding means that the vast unbanked populations in Brazil and elsewhere can sign up via simple referral link, which um, may help to explain the huge growth that they've seen. Looking through the other journeys in Pulse, it's the delivery of the features themselves though, um, whether it's payments, which it really excels at, savings goals, rewards, virtual cards, where the best UX occurs for Newbank. Um, and their impressive array of features, it, they almost always adhere to the best design practices, ultimately providing a very powerful and consistently well-branded product. Really interesting story. Um, if you, it, To me, this story is about if you want to grow huge, start somewhere big. You know, Brazil is a big country. There's a lot of people there. Um, New Bank is starting to rival some of those really big Chinese digital banks with, you know, millions and millions of customers. You know, the number of customers they've acquired in a quarter is bigger than most digital banks anywhere around the world. But I think what's really interesting about this story is the revenue growth, right? A lot of digital banks have struggled with revenue growth, but, you know, New Bank is starting to turn that in. And it's interesting to see the share price turn around, disappointing after IPO, but actually, they're doing a really good job there. So super interesting. Let's keep watching them. That's what you call traction. That's great. Uh, so let's move to our and finally story, bringing everyone back for the last story of the week. So this is, uh, we had a bit of a chuckle with this one, Goldman Sachs to offer senior staff unlimited holiday. So investment bank Goldman Sachs has said to its senior staff, 
that will be they'll be allowed to take as much holiday as they want. So unlimited vacation. Uh, there'll be no cap on paid leave under the new bank's flexible vacation plan, um, which is designed to promote rest and recharge. Junior bankers, however, will still only be entitled to a fixed amount of holiday. The bank has been accused of overworking younger staff in the past. Yeah. Uh, in a memo sent to staff globally, the bank said workers would be required to spend at least three weeks on leave annually from next year with at least one week of consecutive days off. I mean, this sounds like mental health is great, but then like not really because like historically these guys have been terrible to their junior bankers. But what are your initial thoughts on when you saw the story, Mita? Um, I, I feel like I had lots of thoughts, <laughs> some, some of which you, you outlined. I think in some ways it's great, right? Um, I think if you're, if you do your, uh, the concept of unlimited holidays, it, it, if you get all the work you need to do done, you should have the flexibility to take the time off that you need. Um, segmenting it by seniority feels uh, icky to me. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, as usual, maybe they got it kind of 50% right. Um, on the other hand, though, it, it's interesting because uh, unlimited vacation was adopt has been adopted by kind of almost a standard policy in a lot of Silicon Valley startups. And, and some of the, uh, what I've heard anecdotally, and I think there's now data to support it, is that um, people actually take less vacation. Mm-hmm. Then if you get, if you give them a certain amount of time off because you, you feel guilty, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to plan for. And so while the ethos might be, Hey, take all the time you need in practice, what actually happens is, is people take even less. Yeah. I feel like Goldman is the sort of like cynical place to work where like the people, the, the puppet masters were like, oh, this will really fix their little red wagon. Let's give them <laughs> unlimited vacation. But like, we know that actually what's going to happen is that they're going to spend less time off. Like, perfect. And like, we can't do this to junior staff because we've already been pillicked over this. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what, it's hard to quantify, but the impact on morale. Like if I was a entry-level analyst, um, you know, I started my career at Bain, which uh, in consulting, which was, uh, not the same, but analogous. If I saw my, like, if I just put myself back in those shoes, if I saw people who were many years ahead of me having different policies on around holidays and vacation than I did, um, even if in practice it, it worked out to be different, I, I think the morale impact, at least for me would be pretty significant and, and maybe I would have churned faster. So it'll be interesting to see, what happens here. Yeah, I think unlimited holidays is very tricky if you haven't got the right culture. Um, and if you haven't got a way of measuring people on output, to, to Meta's point, point earlier, if you've got lots of sort of ambitious people, uh, they won't feel like they can take a holiday and if they're trying to prove themselves and so on. So it's quite tricky. I, the only thing I do like in what Goldman has done is sort of insisting that people actually do take holiday and, and they take at least three days and, and at least one week um, consecutively. But I think this is very dangerous. And I think the, the precedent, as, as Meta just said, of splitting it between senior and junior is is very weird. So with the wrong culture, I think this easily backfires and results in people working too hard and burning out. Um, so I'm not a fan, even though I love the idea of unlimited holiday, I'm not a fan in practice because I think people don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things about um, forcing people to take a week off uh, is that it's really great for detecting fraud. Like if someone if someone within the institution has been perpetuating a fraud, like ideally actually you want two weeks, but like 
if they're forced to be away from their desk for one week, it'll um, it becomes very hard to sustain like a you know sort of whatever shell game you might have going on. This is like a, a famous thing, and so like quite a lot of banks actually have policies around forcing certain like especially critical uh, individuals to like step away from their desk for more than a week um, just in case. <laughs> Lachlan, did you get any? Did you have any thoughts about this? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't want to steal Goldman's thunder, but we've been offering unlimited paid time off <laughs> for a long time. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's a cultural thing. So, you know, you, you, you know, to everyone's point, I, I certainly think, you know, with Goldman's full of type A personalities, the chance of them taking more time off than they ordinarily would have, I think is very, very low. So uh, it, it goes down to the, the, the organization, but it's, Certainly a healthy policy, and, and you know we we encourage our our staff to take as much time as they need, um, as long as they're getting the results, um, you know that, that we expect from them in terms of achievement. Um, you know, if it means that they take an extra one or two weeks a year to, to mentally recharge and come back refreshed, you know, we we highly encourage them to do so, and certainly don't restrict it to the senior employees within the business. Awesome. Thank you. I, we could, yeah, this was such a great show, guys. Um, this We're going to wrap up the show here. Um, thank you so, 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 so much to this amazing panel of guests. Um, where can we people find out more about you and what you're up to? David? Uh, probably best is just the, the Griffin website, uh, griffin.sh. Um, can also be found on Twitter, LinkedIn. I mean, Polywork, all of your uh, various hot social media networks. Cool. TikTok as well. I'm joking. Are you, you're not on TikTok, are you? <laughs> no, I mean, I go on not TikTok yet. to look at like Corgi videos, but that's uh, about it. Also for listeners who can't see, uh, David's Corgi made an appearance on the podcast earlier. Beautiful dog. All right, Mina, where can we find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, yeah, Twitter or LinkedIn. So Twitter is, um, my handle is M-K-H-A-N-D-E-L. Just search for my name, Mina Agarwal, and um, LinkedIn, same thing. Lachlan. Yeah, uh, just uh, come to our website and, and to learn more about Indebted, it's indebted.co or indebted.com, um, which we recently managed to purchase, which was great. Um, and uh, yeah, all the same social channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, et cetera. Sweet. Benjamin? I'm on LinkedIn or 11fs.com. Brilliant. And as for me, uh, you can find me at 11fs.com. If you are in New York, uh, by the time this uh, airs, Tomorrow, I guess, is going to be the After Dark. We're hosting uh, an After Dark event in New York. Tickets are free and it's going to be dope. Come through. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, join into the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11FS. Thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.